Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Eliza Jean Schaefer, and I'm a Dartmouth 20. Today, I'm joined by Professor Herschel Nackless, a policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center and a research assistant professor of government at Dartmouth. Professor Nackless, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yesterday's lecture and your research interests more broadly? Uh, sure, and uh, thanks for doing this. Um, so yeah, so I study and teach American politics and public policy. I, I focus on health and social policy. Uh, and more broadly, I'm interested in how old policies uh, and old governance structures interact with new social problems and new political problems. So um, these general interests uh, obviously have a lot of relationships with today's crisis. And sort of in addition to my research interests, I've taught a class recently on the financial crisis from 10 years ago. So this seemed like a good opportunity to sort of put those research and teaching interests uh, together and apply them to sort of force myself to think through uh, sort of everything the country and the world's been going through for the last three months. Um, and if you had to pick three main takeaways from yesterday, what would they be? So I'll pick five. Okay. But I'll go through them quickly. Um, so I, th I think the biggest takeaway is that um, we should probably spend more time thinking about the deeper structures and deeper patterns of American crisis governance and less about the particular current president and uh, his particular features. Um, if we really want to understand the crisis, the crisis response, and the future implications of all of that, I think we need to think about sort of consistent, predictable, um, sort of deeper features of the American policymaking state. And so then that leads to like four specific arguments. Um, the first is that if we think about the public health response and we think about the way that public health happens in this country, it shouldn't surprise us that the response has been um, fragmented, controversial, uh, small, insufficient. Um, because in many ways, uh, we have underinvested in public health uh, over the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, so if we think about sort of the policy history in the public health space and the underprovision of public health related public goods, um, it shouldn't surprise us that that part of the response uh, has been problematic. By the same token, if we think about sort of our history of responses to economic crisis, basically uh, we did this 10 years ago. Um, we drew up a new playbook in response to the financial crisis and Great Recession. And over the last few months, we pulled it off the shelf, dusted it off, and, and applied it toward present use. Now, that response has been imperfect. It was imperfect 10 years ago. It's imperfect now. Um, but we had a playbook that's pretty good. And we put it to use, um, you know, to decent effect. And, you know, there's still more fiscal stimulus that, that will probably be needed if unemployment stays where it is. Um, there's still sort of large-scale um, public goods programs that are probably necessary. But, but again, we had a playbook on the economy and the economic response from 10 years ago that we could use today uh, in a way that we didn't in the public health space. All right, and then two smaller points just looking forward. So the first is that as, as we think about crisis responses in American history more generally, uh, as a predictive matter, you know, crises are not good for incumbents and not good for incumbent parties. So we can think about how that might play out moving forward uh, in the next few months uh, in the next year or two. And then lastly, uh, one thing we know is that crisis policies stick around when the crises go away. And that crisis policymaking sort of reshapes the American state in, durably, in, in durable ways uh, once the crisis 
has left. So just to take one example, Social Security was a crisis New Deal era policy, began small, uh, has expanded ever since, um, and is now sort of a durable bedrock of the American state in a way that wasn't precisely envisioned by its founders, but is, is certainly not going anywhere. Um, so yeah, so that was five, not three, and, and, and not super brief, but uh, hopefully that gives you a sense. Yes, it sounds like a good summary to me. Um, and so you mentioned a class that you taught earlier this year on the Great Recession. Um, disclosure for the listeners, I was in that class. Um, and I know that in that class, we talked a little bit about populist backlash um, to policymaking in the time of crises, which I think is an interesting question in this current crisis, given that our leader is a populist himself. Um, can you talk a little bit about populism and coronavirus? That's a really good question. And I think we have some indication of how part of that will play out, uh, but we don't yet know. So if we think about the last financial crisis uh, in the US or, or the Eurozone, um, in many ways, what happened was that the response generated populism on both the left and the right. So out of the last crisis and crisis response, in many ways, we got both uh, the Tea Party on the right and Occupy Wall Street on the left. And both of those have substantially shaped the Republican and Democratic parties uh, moving forward. Um, and many folks think that in many ways, uh, Trump came out of parts of the Tea Party wing of, of the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, the thing that we know about, about populists is that uh, they're really good at running really interesting and energizing political campaigns. They are pretty good at getting elected, and they are not good at governing. And one might think that Trump fits this mold, um, ran a very sort of uh, interesting, innovative campaign. Uh, that campaign worked. He won the primary. That campaign worked again. Uh, he won the general. Um, but a lot of evidence suggests that, um, you know, as a matter of governance, uh, there have been some problems, uh, to put it mildly. Um, you know, and so if, if we think about the present response, we see uh, the, the president sort of re-energizing some of that populist energy. So um, I can't remember precisely what the line was, but it was like liberate Michigan, right? Maybe, maybe you know this better than I do. You know, the... Yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, liberate Michigan, liberate uh, wherever else. And, and these protests that you've seen at state capitals to reopen the economy, I think, are sort of a revival of some of that populist energy from, from the Tea Party or particular parts of the president's base. Um, on the left, um, you know, of course, Bernie, Bernie Sanders didn't win the presidency. Uh, excuse me, didn't win the nomination this time around. But that energy is still there. It's interesting to see how it'll interact with, you know, uh, Vice President Biden, who's going to be the likely nominee, who's 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 not a part of that wing of the party, but is increasingly adopting some of its policies. Um, you know, and you might think that some of the you might think that some of the you know events of the last week or two related to um, 
you know, policing in this country are, are tapping into some important components of populist energy on, on the left. I don't know. Do you, do you have thoughts about this? Um, I think that sounds about right to me. Um, I'm still unclear myself on where Trump stands in all of that, because to me, it seems like he's kind of trying to like govern and egg on his populist base in a way that's a little confusing. And I, I guess I'm curious to see if that works. Yeah. I mean, my, my general sense, again, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't study comparative politics, but my general sense is that other populist leaders who were great at getting themselves elected, you know, who tapped into real needs that were felt to be unmet by centrist left or centrist right parties, you know, who got elected in other countries. So we can think of, uh, you know, Bolsonaro, you know, folks like that who, who managed to get elected have also sort of had some difficulties maintaining their populism and sort of standard patterns of governance and that they've, they've suffered during this crisis too. Um, and the other question that I've been thinking about related to the United States response is um, kind of like the, the federal versus local dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, because in our inner class, we talked about how usually crises are a time where central power is kind of expanded and tightened. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I feel like in part due to like a, a lack of responsiveness on the part of the federal government, um, localities have stepped up in some ways. Um, do you think that on the whole we'll see like an increase in executive control or could this possibly be like an inflection point like reversing trends from like the past, I don't know how many years, where we've seen the federal government like growing? That's, that's another great question. I, I, guess, I guess the way that I see it is that I think that this crisis will empower both federal governments and state governments. And the reason for that is that I think that they are respectively uniquely positioned to provide goods uh, that the other is, is not as good at providing, right? There's sort of an institutional division of labor across the institutions of American government. And I think particularly in crises, um, institutions need to play to their strength. And so, you know, the federal government's strength is marshalling huge amounts of resources at scale, uh, at speed, in a way that no other body can. And local and state government strengths is understanding conditions on the ground and the granularity and particularity of lived experience at the local level and responding to that uh, in, in sort of quick and locally calibrated ways. And so I think that um, what the crisis will do is sort of increase the public's demands for both of those complementary competencies to be increased. Um, so I think in the short to medium term, like what the public will want is both the federal government and state and local governments to do what they do best to greater degrees. Um, I don't know if you find that persuasive, but that's kind of how I see this playing out. Yeah, I can see that. 
And what about private bodies, like corporations? Yes. Are there, is there some specific set of them that, that's of interest? I suppose just as a class. Like I think that we've seen large corporations, like large multinational corporations step up in some interesting ways. I think that's right. And I think what is sort of happening is that where federal and state governments have been ill-equipped to quickly do what has been necessary, uh, in, in my view, you know, in part due to underinvestment in public health and public health-related public goods, um, you know, as we've seen in lots of other areas, private actors have willingly or, or sort of uh, at the government's strong suggestion stepped in to fill those gaps. And so, you know, one thing we've seen really recently is um, sort of efforts by the federal government to get money to uh, biopharmaceutical companies to expedite and expand um, vaccine testing. So this is called Operation Warp Speed. And, and the goal is to use the resources of the federal government to get um, private companies to do the sorts of research that on their own, it wouldn't make sense for them to invest tons of money into. Um, so I think there you see like an example of public-private partnership that should hopefully yield uh, returns many times the investment that, uh, that went into it. I mean, that said, uh, you know, my colleagues, uh, Kendall Hoyt and Chris Snyder um, from Geisel and the economics department, who you might know both of them too, you know, they have a, a paper that they're working on that should be coming out soon that shows that, you know, the scale globally of public investment that would be required to get to firms for firms to develop and create and distribute uh, the scale of, of vaccines that we need is, is huge. And again, the benefits are many times over, but that sort of investment needs to be quite large. Um, so yeah, I think there's a huge role for the private sector to play. I think increasingly we're seeing that. Um, and I guess ideally those sorts of relationships would become sort of more institutionalized and not be driven by these sort of crisis logics. So do you think that we'll see more of that in the future or does it need kind of like the, the catalyst of a crisis? Yeah, I mean, so I think, I think it was Rahm Emanuel who famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And, uh, you know, so that, that, would be, that would be my hope that, you know, from crisis sort of produces necessary things that wouldn't be produced in a non-crisis environment. And then, and then hopefully they stick around. Um, I mean, there are some, you know, there, there are some potential great things to happen in, in the sort of collaborative healthcare space there. There are also some worries, of course, um, but these aren't sort of unique to the, the crisis domain. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think, though, there are areas that, that worry me a little more. You know, I don't think it's a great thing when, because we have underinvested in, you know, strategic public health reserves, it's then left to the owner of a, a New England football team to take the team's jet, fly to China, pick up masks, and fly those back and distribute them. I mean, that's wonderful. That's really nice. But that's not sort of an efficient, well-targeted, or equitable way to solve public problems. Um, you know, it's, it's remarkable that people step up and, and do it, but it's certainly not the 
you know, social welfare maximizing approach to, to addressing public problems. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in the, the philanthropic and charitable community are now rightly realizing that like public charity or, or public efforts shouldn't be substitutes for government. Again, uh, public things can do things, or excuse me, private entities can do things that governments can't do super well and governments can do things that private entities can't do super well. And so I think there's this, this movement in sort of people who think really rigorously about private philanthropy. A lot of this is happening out at Stanford um, to sort of bring the best of both worlds to that. And I'm not sure that, you know, in a crisis, uh, Bob Kraft flying a plane uh, to China and back is an example of that. Again, it's, it's a, it's a nice thing, but it's probably not the most efficient or equitable way to do it. Last question that I have, and then I'll let you finish up with anything that you think should be, on the record that I didn't ask about. Um, do you think that we should have seen this coming? Because I've seen a lot of different takes on it. Um, some people say there's just, it was unprecedented and unpredictable and other people say that it was only like a matter of time um, and that we should have like built up the infrastructure to deal with a global pandemic. Um, and I'm, I'm talking mostly about like the, the public health aspect of this and not the financial aspect, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Uh, and unfortunately we don't do much as much prevention as would be ideal. And what we tend to do is sort of skimp on the prevention dimension and then sort of over respond on the treatment dimension once things go wrong. And I mean that sort of generally, um, but it also applies to this crisis. So should we have seen it coming? Um, if you talk to everyone from sort of public health experts, uh, infectious disease experts, uh, global health officials at the WHO, um, you know, they've all been saying that this has been coming for decades. If you talk to uh, novelists, like uh, our friend and colleague, uh, Charlie Whelan or Lawrence Wright, who, who also has a new book about this, you know, uh, a lot of people saw things like this coming. Um, you know, you can't predict the precise time, you can't predict the precise place, you can't predict the precise form, you can't predict the precise sort of mechanism, but, you know, a large scale global public health pandemic has been something that many uh, experts, policymakers, uh, people in these communities have long been predicting. And, you know, the corresponding claim is, look, if we invest more ex ante, the problems will be smaller ex post and the required investment will be smaller ex post. But you know, it's, hard for, it's hard for governments to do that. Right? It's a lot easier for Congress to say, look, we'll spend this money now in our districts now on stuff that's happening now, education, police, whatever. Uh, than some pandemic that might happen at some future time in some future way when some other people are in office. Um, this is sort of a classic, it's a classic governance problem. Um, but again, my hope is that sort of having witnessed this classic governance problem, um, we'll do a little bit more to do a little bit better to prepare ourselves for the next one because there will be a next one. Um, it's just inevitable. Um, you know, in a sort of highly, highly globalized, highly fast moving uh, world, these things are just going to happen. Um, so, you know, you, you never want to say the precise thing 
and the precise timing of it and the precise mechanics of it were precisely predictable. That's, that's, that's usually wrong. But what you can say is that a general form of it was predictable and that there were a series of things that aren't super complicated that, that could have been done to make things better once it happened. Um, so, you know, again, the hope is that, that Rahm Emanuel is right and, and we don't let a crisis go to waste. And, you know, we, we, we sort of make our way out of this crisis uh, as, as quickly and as, as safely as possible and uh, prepare ourselves for the next one um, as best we can. Um, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up? Uh, I don't know. Are there <laughs> about about what in particular? Uh, anything. <laughs> uh, how does this change your uh, view of American or global governance? Who? I think it's definitely challenged any kind of residual thoughts I had about American exceptionalism um, because I have not found our response to be all that impressive um, compared with other, you know, other developed countries. Um, and it has made me think a lot about our federal system and why that makes America unique, especially in times of crisis. I, I think those are two brilliant sort of takeaways from this that I'd really want to echo. Like one, we are well served to think about stuff other people, countries, states, global entities do well. Um, you know, there's no monopoly on expertise, knowledge, and getting things right. And so, yeah, hopefully your first lesson is, uh, is felt by many, many in this country. You know, we get a lot of stuff right. We do a lot of stuff really nicely. Um, there's a reason that our constitution has been copied the world over. But on the other hand, uh, other countries, other organizations know some stuff too. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll learn from that. I think your second point is, you know, closer to home, so important. And if there's one thing that I've sort of beat into the heads of my students over the last two and a half months, it's that... Man, you know, every Dartmouth student wants to to go to D.C. or, or, or you know, go to New York or go to San Francisco, go to Boston. And those are all wonderful places. I've lived in all of them. <laughs> They're great. But, uh, gosh, if, you know, if 12% more Dartmouth students left Dartmouth and joined state, local government, state and local private organizations, state and local nonprofits what a better world that would be. And so, you know, hopefully this crisis will serve to reallocate high value human capital, right? Um, you know, all, all of our students or lots of our students are sort of sitting at home in states and local communities, not in Hanover, experiencing this crisis. And, you know, we get together in class and, you know, talk about the differences. So, you know, one week a, a student in Georgia is, is, is freaking out because all of their friends are, are going to a, a not their friends, their brother's friends will say, are going to a club uh, in the middle of, of May with no social distancing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and other students are like, I haven't left my house in three months. Other students are like, well, you know, I'm in Tennessee and I just went to the shopping mall with all my high school friends. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So people are experiencing very different worlds, but regardless, like people are experiencing the importance of state and local government and state and, state and local NGOs, state and local private entities. And so, you know, if the crisis serves to reallocate bandwidth, reallocate human capital, reallocate energy, money, attention um, to the state and local level, I think that would be all for the better. Washington DC is wonderful, but you can get a lot more done and impact a lot more people uh, quickly and directly um, the smaller the units of governance are. And so um, if people take that lesson home, I think, I think that'll be a really good thing for this country. Um, so, uh, you know, where are, are you, uh, where are you going to be next year? Next year, um, I'm going to be in New York uh, working in digital marketing. Uh-huh. And uh, what's the probability that you ever uh, move back to your state or your home homeland to uh, allocate your high-value human capital to uh, the place you grew up? I think hard to fix a number to it at this point. I probably will not stay in a big city forever. Do you think it's changed how your peers sort of think about this, this issue? Um, in terms of like living in cities versus like smaller towns or just you know where they take their talents mm. and whether those talents are directed more locally i don't know i definitely think it's made people think about like the relative merits of living in a city because you know if everyone has to stay at home it's a whole lot more pleasant to be in a somewhere suburban where you have like a yard and like access to like outside <laughs> greenery and a large house as opposed to like a studio apartment. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard that, that take a lot. I don't know that I've heard anyone thinking about like how they're investing their human capital. Just people clamoring for, uh, for, for four bedrooms, two bathrooms, 2000 square feet and a white picket fence. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. So it's going to be, so what this is actually going to do is recreate the 1950s. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, there are, you know, 1950s were not a perfect time in this country, but um, there were a lot of things going well or trending in the right direction <laughs> in the 50s. Um, that's interesting. I, but I kind of think my prediction is that it will lead to a revival in small towns in middle America. That would be really, really interesting. Um, that would be that would be phenomenally interesting. Um, you know, there's evidence that people sort of once they sort of get into their 30s and form families or or whatever um, are leaving cities. But if that exodus were larger, um, yeah, that would I mean, it would change the shape of this country in super interesting ways. Um, we shall see. Meanwhile, though, you'll be in you'll be in New York. Yes, I will. Um, and I think that is a good place to end it. So that is all for today's episode of Rocky Talk. Thanks again to Professor Naklas, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. 
This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.